Good morning. I'm really impressed with the turnout this morning. I was, I was judging all you Portland snow drivers all week, and I just repent right now. Uh, we are a tough, weather-savvy church, apparently. Um, hey, he, if you didn't catch that, Gary Soper, who we'll be talking about later, uh, just called me a Californian. And I'll have you know, Gary, that before I lived in California, I lived in Minneapolis, St. Paul. So, uh, I do want to say, I did, I probably got a little soft, that's true. There is some truth to that, in, in more ways than one. But at any rate, uh, holiday poundage. But we're off topic already. This is, this is not how my intro was planned at all. I was going to say something about our series that we're in, um, and uh, we've been in it all month. It's been called In, and the idea of this series is that we have a God that during this time of the year we, we are focused on the fact that he steps in, that he comes into our lives and that he comes to bring light into the darkness, that he comes to bring hope into the hopelessness and peace and the chaos, that he doesn't stand far off, but he, but he enters into our world, into the, the messiness of where we live. But he doesn't just come in, he comes in to invite us in, into something greater, into his plans and purposes for our lives and for all of creation. And, you know, I was thinking about it this week, um, as I was pondering, what, what will this message be about today? Uh, I was thinking about the power of that word in. And I, and I love the, the artwork that Liz created, and I was just kind of reflecting on it. I was thinking, there's a lot to that word. It's a teeny little word. It's used all the time, and yet it is so powerful. I was wondering, you know, what does it mean to be in? How does it feel to be in? To be a person that's in is, is such a big deal. Because we all like to be in, don't we? To be in feels great. To be in the know or in the loop or involved or invited. To be a part of that inside joke at work. Some of you uh, have recently done this. Others of you that's coming soon, you're going to apply for college. And during the process, there's this big question. There's this hope. Will I get in? It's all about in. If you've ever tried out for a team or a group or a production of any kind, you want to be in. When they post... The roster, the, the, you know, the, the cast, you want to be on the list. You want to be in. You see, in is a powerful thing. It means you matter, you made it, you're valued, you're noticed, you're accepted. In fact, in is something that every human soul longs for. In is something that every human soul was made for. But most of the time... For us here at Cedar Mill, I would say we take in for granted. For most of us, we're so used to being in that we don't think about it too often. Most of the time, in is just the default. That is, until you're out. In doesn't matter that much until all of a sudden you're out and then suddenly in is a very big deal because we all know what out feels like. Every single person in this room can tell you a story about a time when they were out. Out of a job, or out in a relationship, or out in a marriage, or maybe even out in your own family with your parents, or your kids, or your siblings. Out in a friendship, out in a group, on the outside looking in. 
You ever been out? You ever felt what it feels like to be out? I'll never forget my fifth grade year in school. My dad was in the military, and so we'd moved to Montgomery, Alabama. We didn't even move there for an entire year. We were only in Montgomery for 10 months. And that was a long year of school for me. You see, my parents decided that year that we were going to rent a home, but it wasn't a home near the base. And so I wasn't with all the other military kids that had transferred in. I was a little bit separated. And so the school where I went um, was mostly kids who lived in Montgomery, and so I was the new kid in school. And at that time in my life, I was already a pretty big kid. I was really tall, um, pretty awkward actually. Not a lot has changed, I know. But... um, but I was also really sensitive. I was a, a real sensitive as a, as a young, young kid. And I was, at that point, really very insecure. And that entire fifth grade year, I didn't have any friends in my class. And the thing that sticks out to me most about that year, the thing I'll never forget, is the lunchroom. I, I can still picture it, plain as day. I can still smell it. I can see those little tables with the built-in stool seats. And the reason I can picture them so clearly is because every day after going through the lunch line to get our food, I would have to walk over to the table, the table for our class, and I would have to pick out one of those stool seats to sit in by myself. And at best, I would choose a seat and I would sit and I would be, for the most part, ignored. At worst, I'd be told that someone else was sitting there, that that seat was saved and I'd have to move somewhere else. But I would sit every day at lunch and eat, surrounded by other kids, but feeling all alone. I dreaded lunchtime every single day for an entire year. I can still remember that feeling. I can still remember what it felt like to walk towards that table and have to choose a seat. You see, out is a pain-filled deal because on some level it means you're not wanted. You're not welcomed. You're not good enough. You didn't make it. You can't be in. And that's a feeling that once you've experienced it, it's hard to forget. You know, when it comes to ins and outs, it's interesting to think about God. Is God an in or an out? What do you think? It's not a trick question, really. should be easy. Is God in or is God out? He's in. In fact, the truth about God is that he's so in that he even exists in an eternal state of in called the Trinity. It's a state where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit exist as three and yet one in the ultimate community of acceptance. The Trinity is a place where there is is utter and complete safety, love, kindness, consideration. When the Spirit gets His lunch and is walking with it to sit down, there is never any doubt about whether the Father and Son will slide over and make space for Him at the table. The seat is never taken, never held for somebody else in the Trinity. In the Trinity, insecurity, fear, rejection, they they just aren't a thing. The Trinity is the most whole, complete, fulfilled, satisfied place you can ever imagine. Friends, God, all by himself, with no one else, is the ultimate in. And yet, even within that, even within the satisfying, complete wholeness of himself, God cares about the outs. He cares about people 
who aren't in. He cares about this world. He cares about you and me. And what's amazing about the Christmas story, and this is what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, is that God, even as the utmost in, comes down. This is a paraphrase that I wrote of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. God is an in that did not consider his inness as something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became an out. And not just any out, but the kind of out that would die in the most out-like way you can possibly imagine. Friends, you see, we see God's heart for those who are out at Christmas. You know, in Jesus' day in Israel in the first century, there were certain occupations that the rabbis, that the religious leaders called despised occupations. Despised occupations. These were occupations that mamas didn't want their babies growing up into. And the rabbis, they would talk about these jobs. There were lists and they included trades like people who gambled with dice. Gambling was kind of a no-no in the first century in Israel. Um, also on the list were pigeon trainers. It's kind of a, a strange one, isn't it? But, but pigeon racing was considered to be a form of gambling. People would race pigeons and they would, they would bet on that. It was sort of like, like dogfighting or cockfighting in our day. It was just absolutely like abominable to the religious leaders in the first century. So pigeon race trainers were on there as well. And then, then tax collectors were on there. Usurers were on there. And these were people that lent money to others, generally at an obnoxiously high interest rate. And this profession was, was looked down upon by the rabbis because these are people that most often would take advantage of the poor. They would loan people money who couldn't get money from anyone else, and then they would charge really, really high interest rates. And in the end, they would end up owning people. Farmers who worked, or even worse, made their workers work on the Sabbath. They were on the list. They were not accepted. And then also, also on the list, was shepherds. You see, in Jesus' day, it was just assumed that shepherds were dishonest. And many of them were. Shepherds would take their flocks and they would graze them on lands that belonged to other people. That's just something that shepherds generally did. It's like turning your, your sheep loose to eat the neighbor's grass. It's common practice for shepherds. Most shepherds didn't actually own the flocks that they were managing. They were managing for someone else. And one common practice among shepherds to make a little extra cash is they would simultaneously and sometimes uh, steal a sheep and sell it for some extra profit without ever telling the owner. Shepherds were so looked down upon that they were not allowed to bear witness in the local courts. Their testimony was not considered to be reliable. And so uh, the court system, the judges would not even hear from them. If you were accused of a crime and your only alibi was, I was hanging out with some shepherds, you were pretty much hosed. They're these just dishonest, thieving, unreputable people. Shepherds, ah. You know, we think of shepherds and it's like, they're the cozy, nice people who carry the sheep around and they're just like utter trash in the first century. And yet, when you read the Christmas story, who gets the news of the birth of Christ? Who's called upon to be like the witness of that, to, to share the news of that? It's the shepherds, right? Why? Well, it's because right away in Jesus, God is making a big statement. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not just here for the ins. 
Jesus isn't just good news for the powerful or popular or people of high status. Christmas is good news for you even if you're a shepherd, even if you're someone who's out. In fact, as soon as Jesus is born, there's this verse from Isaiah 40 that's used to announce his arrival. And it's, it reads this way. This is from Isaiah and from Luke. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And there's a lot going on in those verses, but one thing that scholars believe is that by announcing Jesus' arrival in this way, what the scriptures are telling us yet again is this. In Jesus, there is a new kind of hope for people who live in the valleys. People who have lived in the valleys of disappointment and discouragement. People who have traditionally been out. Now in Jesus can be in. And then... If you read on, if you read the story about the story of Jesus, his life, this really starts to happen. Jesus actually lived and ministered in this way. He continues time and time again to embrace people who are out. This one time, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and he knelt down before him. He was looking to be healed. And friends, leprosy in the first century was one of the most contagious, feared, deadly diseases in the ancient world. You were never more out than you were if you had leprosy. Lepers were put out of their communities. They were cast out of their families. They were forced to live out on their own in colonies with other lepers. They were ostracized and alienated from other human connection and contact. But there's something about this Jesus that draws the leper in. And then in Matthew 8, we read these words. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He touches this man with leprosy. Be clean, he said, and immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. You see, the message here is clear. Even lepers can go from out to in with Jesus. Right after this, Jesus was approached by a centurion, a Roman soldier. And this soldier told Jesus that his beloved servant was sick. Now again, you have to understand the hatred the Jews had for the Romans. Especially Roman soldiers. The Romans had conquered them. The Romans had oppressed them. The Romans were responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of their countrymen. If there was anyone that was an enemy of God and God's people, it was a soldier in the Roman army. But what does Jesus do? He not only heals the servant, but he goes on to say about this Roman soldier, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Another time, Jesus and his disciples are making their way back up north to Galilee, and they're traveling right through a region called Samaria. And on their way, they stop off at a well right about noon where Jesus encounters a woman, a Samaritan woman who's drawing water. And this story has so many layers to it, friends. But in short, here's the high points. This woman was the wrong race, the wrong gender. She was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And as it turns out, she even had the wrong morality. If there was ever a moment when Jesus' followers expected him to simply say, that's it. This has gone too far. You're out. 
this was the moment. And then Jesus talks to her and he cares about her and he offers her assurance and hope and new life. You see, for Jesus, even this scandalous Samaritan woman is not beyond inviting in. Time and time again, Jesus demonstrates to his followers that even people, even people the world considers out are now in with God through him. The bleeding woman, the paralyzed, the blind, the lame, the sick, people who were possessed by demons, the thief on the cross. The list goes on and on and on and on. And it took a while, friends. But finally, Jesus' disciples, his followers, they began to pick up on this and they started to see people differently. You know, in first century Israel, there were some pretty definite lines of division between groups of people. If you think things are divided in our world, if you think things are divided in our nation these days, it's nothing compared to the first century in Israel. This was not a politically correct culture, and so who was in and who was out was often stated very explicitly, very harshly, in a very cold way. In fact, if you were a Jewish man, it was quite common to pray this prayer. In the first century, Paul, when he was a Pharisee, most likely would have prayed this very prayer every single morning. Blessed are you, O God, who made me male, not female, free, not slave, an Israelite, not a Gentile dog. Thank you, God, that you made me one of us, not one of them. What an awful thing it would be to have to be one of them, one of those people, someone who is out. Friends, this same guy, the guy who probably prayed that prayer every morning, after he meets Jesus, he's writing to the church, he's writing to the church In Galatia, he's writing to people who are now following Jesus. And listen to what he says. He says, Church, in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then listen, listen to these categories. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, those are not arbitrary categories. This is Paul saying, the ins and outs are no more. The places in this world, the places where the world says people are either in or out, in Christ, everyone is in. Everyone's accepted, everyone's loved, everyone's valued. Everyone is a child of God. So the question for today is how do we help people know this? How do we help people see and understand that they are in with God, that God invites them in? How do we help people who are out come in? You know, at the very beginning of the book of Acts right after Jesus has gone back to be with the Father and the church is just getting started. Uh, There's this story about Peter and John. And Peter, if you know anything about Peter up until this point in the story, he's been sort of hard-headed. He's a slow learner. He's not picking things up real quickly. He's one of the guys who's quick to point out time and time again who the ins are and who the outs are. But now, Peter, the same guy, Jesus is gone The Spirit's come, and Peter is leading the church. And Peter and John are going 
over to the temple at about three o'clock in the afternoon for a prayer gathering. And as they go, there's a man who's sitting at one of the entrances to the temple at the gate. And this man, the scripture tells us, is lame. He's crippled. And in this society, to be crippled, to be lame, meant that, meant that you were instantly and out. We don't know how old this man was, but the text seems to indicate that he has been sitting and begging at this same gate for years. Day after day, hour after hour, every day of his life, sitting and begging for money, sitting and watching the hundreds and thousands of people walk by, sitting and asking, will someone see me today? Will someone notice me? Will someone care? Will anyone help me? And the idea here is that people are walking past him all the time. So he's not by himself, but he's certainly alone. And then it says this, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Just one of hundreds of requests he would make every day. But then we read these words, and these are the words that tell us Peter has started to see people the way Jesus saw people. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Some translations say, Peter fixed his gaze on him. In other words, Peter sees him. He sees this guy. He really sees him. And friends, I believe that is the first step. That's the first thing we must do. We must learn to see people. We must learn to stop and see people the way Jesus saw people. I don't know about you, but sometimes that seems so simple, but sometimes it's real hard for me. Sometimes I just move through life. I just move through my day. I just move through moments and I never stop to see people. Never stop to notice them, to focus on them. Life's just got this, this way of creating a frantic pace and activity that prevent me from stopping and remembering that every single person that crosses my path is someone that matters to God. A couple weeks ago, uh, one of the cars in our family was towed. I won't tell you who it was who was responsible for the car being towed, who parked the car in the spot from which it was towed, except to say that it was my wife. <laughs> She'd gone to the movies with a friend one evening over on the east side, and about 9 o'clock or so, I got a phone call. It was her. She said, Honey, you're going to kill me. And my instant thought was, she wrecked the car. We just got a new car, not a brand new car, but a new-to-us car. And I thought, oh no, she's wrecked the car. I said, did you wreck the car? And she said, I did not wreck the car. But I did get the car towed. To which I responded, great, because, you know, when you plan for the worst, everything else seems, you know, better than that. So I was actually fairly relieved, but I had to get in my car and then drive all the way over to the east side to the movie theater pick up my wife and a friend, and as I picked them up, they kind of climbed in the car, and Amy was like, I'm so sorry, hon. I said, that's all right, no problem, but I do want to see the crime scene. Because up until this point, 
Um, Amy has been telling me on the phone, it's not my fault. I, there was no signs. I, I, the sign that's posted is teeny and tiny and we didn't see it and I did it on accident. I wasn't just, you know, you know, in a hurry and being kind of careless and I was like, I want to see the crime scene. So we drive over to this little parking lot that's a little bit away from the movie theater. Not a single car in the lot. And I'm looking now for the sign and there it is posted kind of up in the corner in the dark on this pole. You know, all cars parked in this lot without a permit will be towed by such and such company. And then it has the phone number. And I say, okay, I can see how you would miss the teeny tiny itty bitty sign. Um, You're off the hook. And so we drove over to the tow yard to retrieve our car. And as we're driving there, I'm just getting more and more frustrated. I don't know if any of you have ever had your car towed before. This is my first experience. But when your car's towed, tell me if this isn't true, you feel violated. Like you feel like someone stole one of the most expensive things you own. They took it without your permission and now they're holding it hostage and they're going to make you pay large amounts of, of an arbitrary amount of money to get it back. And if you don't pay, then you'll pay even more as it sits on their lot. You're just frustrated. And so as we're driving over there, you know, we're kind of making light of it, but I'm getting more and more frustrated. I feel violated. I feel a little irked. And we, I'm going into this tow office, the teeny tiny sign. This is unjust. There was not even a car on the lot. You know, you people are the worst and I'm a little worked up. And so I park the car and I walk up. And by the way, it's just like this giant chain link fence with barbed wire. And you think you're going into an office. It's not really an office. It's just like a double wide trailer parked there. And so I go in. I'm admittedly a little fired up. And as soon as I walk in, I notice that the reception area, the lobby area where you stand, about the size of this little platform here, and the place where the receptionist or the person back there, I don't know what her name was, but is separated by that thick plexiglass like that you find at police stations. And as soon as I walk in, I see the plexiglass and this giant sign that reads all these rules. No weapons, no guns, no knives, no yelling, no profanity, like no disrespectful talk. And I'm like, wow, apparently other people... have felt the same way I feel about getting their car towed as well. But the sign sort of backed me off a little bit. I'm like, wow, guns and profanity? Who would do that? Oh, never, you know? Um, I'm just, so I'm, I'm kind of biting my tongue a little bit. But I'll tell you what, I'm judging this lady behind the counter. She kind of just, you know, she doesn't really make eye contact. She's just like, I need your information. And I'm like, how much is this going to be? And she's like, it's posted on the thing. And I'm kind of like, you people. You're like the scum of the earth, you car towers. And I'm ready to tell this lady what I think of her. And I'm judging her. I'm not proud of it, but I'm just admitting. It's a mass confession here. I'm really good for the soul. Um, I'm judging her. I'm like, you look like the kind of person who'd work in a tow yard at night. And I'm just, meh. I'm not saying anything. I'm just polite on the outside. But inside, I'm frustrated. And then she says to me, I'm sure do you have your proof of insurance? And I said, um, no. And she said, you're going to need that for me to give your car back to you. Luckily, I had a copy in my car. So I went back out to get it out of the glove box of my other car. And as I was going, this is 100% a true story. I feel like the whole, as I was leaving, the Holy Spirit just whispered in my mind, you know, Dave, I died for that lady in there. Right? Like, she's the, she's the kind of person that, you would preach to and want to share Christ with. And, I was, I'm, and I'm like, I, I don't want to hear that right now. Can't you just leave me alone, Holy Spirit? You know, I don't want to deal with that. But the Holy Spirit's just kind of nudging me, nudging me. And by the way, I just want to 
Disclaimer, this does not always happen to me. Like, you're like, oh, of course, Pastor Dave, that always happens. You're a pastor, right? This doesn't happen all the time, does it, Matt? Matt will vouch that I'm not normally, like, this nice. No. <laughs> so I, but I am getting nudged by the Spirit. And I go out, I get the insurance, and I go back in. I'm still kind of wrestling with some feelings, but God's kind of poking, poking, poking. And the woman asks for my payment, and I hand over my credit card. As soon as I hand my credit card over, she says, oh, USAA? Are you in the military? I said, well, my dad was in the military. And then she starts to tell me her story. How she was in the military. How she's a veteran. And she starts to just like, over the next 10 minutes or so, lay out some of the things that have happened in her life. And all of a sudden, somewhere in there, somewhere in the midst of her talking and the Holy Spirit speaking, all of a sudden, I found myself seeing her. She was no longer just the woman behind the counter at the place that had towed my car. She was a person with a story and a journey. And she was someone who God loved. And then she asked me what I did for a living. Now, this is a great moment because I luckily had not blown it. And so I was able to say with some dignity... I'm glad you couldn't read my mind earlier, but I am a pastor at Cedar Mill Bible Church, right? Friends, I guess the question today is, is there somebody you need to see? Is there somebody that you need to stop and pause and really look at? Is there someone you work next to that you just walk by or maybe you're annoyed by, or maybe has some habits that rub you the wrong way, but you've never stopped to see them. Maybe someone in your neighborhood, someone in your family, someone you'll be together with this Christmas. Is there anyone in your life that you need to stop and see? Remember that they are a person created in the image of God, someone for whom Jesus died. And despite your feelings for them, despite what they have done or haven't done, God might be asking you to see them, to love them, to represent him to them. The second thing we must do to invite people in is submerge. Now, I'm going for three points today, and I wanted them all to start with S, and this is the biggest stretch, submerge. It's the best word I could come up with, so stick with me here. It will make sense. Uh, The idea here is that we must plunge into the world of the people that we meet. You see, you can't... You can't share Jesus from a distance. In the same way that God doesn't redeem the world from a distance, he dives right in, we too must dive into the lives of people who are out, people who are far from God, people on the fringes, people on the margins. There is no way of doing this without getting messy. You know, I think Paul understood this perhaps more than anyone besides Jesus in the entire New Testament. You know what's interesting? Some of you will know this about Paul's name. Um, In the Bible, numerous times, people's names get changed. Have you seen this? Do you know about this? Time and time again it happens because God changes our identities. God comes in, he changes our identities, he changes who we are from the inside out and to kind of represent that, to kind of make that statement explicit, God will change people's names. It happens all throughout the Bible. Abram becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. Jacob the deceiver becomes Israel, the one who wrestled and struggled with God. Simon, 
Wimpy old Simon becomes Peter, Petros, the rock on which God is going to build his church. And God makes all these changes. But then there's Saul, who becomes Paul, right? Not a big change, but just a one letter or there. Saul, who becomes Paul. Here's the thing about that name change. It's the only name change in the scriptures that God didn't make. God didn't make that name change. Saul made that name change. Saul is a Jewish name. Saul was named originally for King Saul, the first king of Israel, because Saul's identity, his life was all wrapped up in in what? In the fact that he was an Israelite. Right? That's who he was. But he changes his name to Paul. Paul is not a Jewish name. Paul is not an Israelite name. Paul is a Gentile name. Do you remember the categories? Slave, free, male, female, Jew, Gentile. Paul has gone from being an in to naming himself like an out. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, I'll become one of them. I'll even take on their name. I'll submerge myself into their world in order to invite them into the wonderful relationship with God and Christ that I've experienced. I won't do it from a distance. I won't do it as a standoff-ish person. I will dive right in, even to the Gentile world. Not Saul, now I'm Paul. 1 Corinthians 9, listen, listen to what Paul says about his life and the way he dives in and submerges himself into the lives of others. He says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. That's a lot of laws there, right? To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Right? How long has it been since you've submerged yourself with someone who is out? Someone who's out. A lot of ways to be out in this world. You can be out on the margins. Right? You can be out in the office. There's some people maybe where you work that aren't on the ends. You can be out in a social group. You can be out at school. You can be out in the hallway. You can also be out with God. You can be someone far from God, someone who doesn't know or understand God's love. What would it look like to dive into someone else's world, the world of the other, to meet them where they live, to spend time and see life through their lens in order that you might help them be in with Jesus? All right, last point this morning. First, we must see, then we must submerge, and finally, we must share. We started off this morning talking about the shepherds, and that's how we're going to close today as well. It says, uh, the shepherds are approached by the angel, right? And then they're told this great news, the Savior has been born, the Messiah, Christ the Lord in Bethlehem. So what do they do? Do we know the story? They go. They go to check it out. They're going to confirm this, this, this message, right? They go. They see Jesus. They confirm it. He is, in fact, here. It's true. This is a wonderful thing. We've gone from being out to being 
ends. And so then what do they do? We're in now. Good. Our work here is done. No. Upon shifting from being out to being in, this is what we're told. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. You see, friends, we can see people. We can submerge our lives into theirs. We can get involved. We can get our hands dirty. We can really care about people and engage their lives, their needs, their concerns. But at some point, we must share the good news, the gospel, the message that God has come in and that they are no longer on the outs, but that in Christ, they can be in with the living God of the universe. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the message. All of us were once out, but now in Christ, we can be in. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, God loves you and he wants to invite you in. And the question this morning for us, friends, is this. The shepherds, in their moment, they do it. They, they take the challenge. They they. They can't contain themselves from spreading the word. They've seen something so amazing. They've experienced experienced something so unbelievable. They can't help but tell the world about Jesus. This happens all the time in our world, right? You experience something, something great, something you love, something you enjoy, something that just brings you like peace and hope and satisfaction, something like porque no tacos, And you can't help but post about it on the internet for all the world to see, right? It's just a natural response. And the same way, friends, when you experience Jesus, the natural response for followers of Christ is to share Him, to talk about Him, to want others to experience the joy that you've experienced. You know, I asked uh, Pastor Ted, Pastor Jerry, you're up kind of early today. You're up here kind of early. This is awkward. Sorry. We have these awkward moments on staff. <laughs> I, I, asked, I asked Pastor Ted to get me one of these chairs and put it up here today. The reason I did is because this coming Saturday, Christmas Eve, these chairs are going to be scattered all throughout this worship center. In every like open, free space, down the aisleways, in spite of what the fire marshal says, we're going to pack this room full of these chairs. Why? Because there will be people here, hopefully, that don't normally come. And, you know, I think sometimes it's easy just to look around and see empty pews or empty chairs, to know that there's going to be empty chairs in this room, extra chairs anyway. But I guess what I want to talk about this morning as we close is the people that are going to be sitting in these. Because you know, someone might come on Christmas Eve, maybe someone that you invited, and maybe they feel lonely. They feel isolated and by themselves in this world. Maybe life's got them going through some things that that are tough, and they come in looking fine on the outside, but feeling lonely and desperate on the inside. And maybe they'll sit in one of these chairs and maybe they'll hear the good news that they're not by themselves, that God loves them, that he has a plan for their life, that he's come to save them and redeem them and restore them, and that he has plans and purposes for their life. Maybe they'll hear that message for the very first time. 
maybe someone will come and they'll be going through depression or anxiety and they'll hear about the peace and hope and joy that can only be found in God through Christ. Maybe right here in this sanctuary, they'll hear about that and they'll decide to turn their life over to the Lord and become one of His children. Maybe they'll come and their family, their marriage will be on the rocks and they won't know where else to go. And they'll come and they'll experience grace and forgiveness and love in a way that will begin a redeeming and restoring process in their heart and in their home. There's a a church, uh, Jerry and I have talked about this before, that, that says an empty seat is... How's it go, Jerry? An empty seat is a serious matter. An empty seat is a serious matter. And I guess what I'm hoping for is that there's not a single empty seat in this place on Christmas Eve. Because every single person in here knows someone who is out. You see, there's out people all around us. The out people don't always look out. They don't always show us everything they're going through. But there's a lot of people in every single one of our lives that don't know the love and grace of God. And my prayer is this, that we would be like the shepherds. That we would be people who see others, who submerge ourselves into their lives, but then that we would be people who share, who invite. Friends, in every single one of your bulletins today is one of these little cards. It's just an invite card. There's nothing special to it. It just has the times of our services on it. It just says, come. Christmas Eve is a moment where people are amazingly open to coming to church. My wife and I were just with some friends this week. We were at a party in our neighborhood, and a person who I've known for a while and gotten to know, who I was quite certain had no interest in God, no need for church, asked me, what time are your services on Christmas Eve? We were thinking of coming, and I said, Three and five, we as a family will come to whatever service you you can make it, right? You see, sometimes we don't know. We can't see what's happening in people's hearts. We don't know what's happening in their lives. And they're just waiting for us to invite them in. Friends, today, I I guess what I challenge you with is I, I would love everyone in this room to leave with a name. The name of one person that maybe God wants you to see, that God wants you to engage, that maybe God wants you to invite. Maybe it's to Christmas Eve, maybe it's to another time. But would you consider just asking people to come, to hear the good news, to hear about the love of God, to hear about a God who loves them so much that he gave his life that they might go from being out to being in with the God of the universe for eternity. So as we come to the table today, I want to encourage you with this. One of the things I love about this church is that we celebrate communion every week. One of the things I don't love about this church is that we celebrate communion every week. And let me tell you why. Because sometimes I think we come to the table and it just gets to be routine. Here we go again. We walk down, we grab the cracker and the cup, and we go back and do our thing. And friends, this is the moment where we declare, I'm in. I'm in with the God of the universe. Not because I'm good enough, not because I'm smart enough, not because I've earned it in any way, but because the God of the universe loved me so much that he came in and gave his life. And now I've gone from being out to being in for all eternity. When you understand the magnitude of that, when you understand our mission to be people who live in and invite others in, we go from just kind of doing church to being the church. So come to the table today. Remember the price that was paid.
so that you can be in. And then consider who God might be asking you to invite in on his behalf. Yeah. I, you, do, you do. You have your rock. I love it. Yep. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. I love that. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to the tables. Um, come when you're ready. Come with a name. Give that name to God. Ask him to do something that maybe you couldn't do on your own. And then when you're ready, back at your seat, you can receive the bread and the cup um, on your own. Father, this morning, uh, we thank you for the thing we take for granted so often that we're in with you. At least for me, God, I've been in with you for so long. Sometimes I forget what an, an amazing gift and privilege it is. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to spur one another on to remember the grace and love and mercy we've received in you and continue to receive in you all the time. And then God, lay on our hearts people that we need to see, people that we need to share with. I pray, Lord, for this coming Saturday that our services would be filled with your spirit in a way that the people who come who don't know you would see you, would sense you, would feel you, would be moved and drawn in to a relationship with you. That's my prayer. We thank you, Father. We thank you for who you are, for your love. We pray it all in Christ's name.